Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Electrocast. They were hauling ass. <laughs> you can see the guy lay down and then cover his face. It looked very realistic. I'd cover my like, face. I, yeah. 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 I would cover my face too. That wouldn't be um, the only thing I'd cover. Right. <laughs> Welcome to today's episode of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers to see if the movie still plays to today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker and instructor at the Los Angeles Film School and CEO and co-founder of Electrocast Media. Hi, I'm Guy Lewis. I'm a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I love movies. I'm Grace. I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I love movies, and I'm an aspiring screenwriter. And I'm David Tausick, and I've been a movie lover for many, many decades. I also made, wrote, directed some movies. And I'm Jake Flowers. I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I am an aspiring image consultant and costume historian. So this past week, the five of us watched director John Ford's 1939 Western classic, Stagecoach. This is the movie that elevated the Western genre when it was kind of in the dumps in Hollywood. It introduced the idea of the adult Western, and it made B-movie actor John Wayne at age 32 into a major movie star, which he remained for the rest of his life. As a quick plot summary... The movie starts off with a cavalry receiving news by telegraph that Apache's on the warpath. And this is in the Old West, shot in Arizona in Monument Valley. And a stagecoach is set to bring a group of people, disparate strangers, to the town of Lordsburg. These different characters get on the stagecoach. They run into an actual outlaw who they take onto the stagecoach as well, who's heading to Lordsburg for revenge against the men who killed his father and brother. Along the way, there are some life-changing events with the different characters. We get to know them in ways that we probably didn't expect. There is, of course, the attack by the Native Americans and ultimately a showdown at night in the town of Lordsburg. Is that an acceptable synopsis mm -hmm. for everyone? Yes, that was great. So considering when this film was made, do you feel it still played for you guys today or did it feel too slow or stodgy? For me, it was a bit slow, <laughs> but once I focused in, I really enjoyed the character study and the story and what it did for Westerns because I don't know anything about Westerns. So <laughs> learning that this was like the revitalization of it, that, that was pretty interesting. 
And I also found out this was John Wayne's 80th movie, but his first like breakout role. I think maybe that was Jesus wrong, but Christ. he was like a B-list actor for a long time. And then he finally got this role. He might have done a bunch of silence along the way, too. I mm-hmm. don't know if he was. Yeah, tiny little parts, a stuntman, yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. And he had been like a UCLA football player. That's how John Ford wow. first met him and Ward Vaughn. They were both on the UCLA football team. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Right. Ford made a film with that football team because Ford had been a football player, too. His nickname was The Bull. Um, I want to go into Ford's history in a little bit, but let's keep going with the initial reactions over here. So, Jake, what was your initial reaction? Uh, This is the first Western film I've ever watched, truly. The very first. Wow. And You've never seen anything? No Clint Eastwood? No, I was just about to say, my mom loves Clint Eastwood. And I had never watched a movie because she has terrible taste in films. And so I was like, I'm never watching a Western. I won't like it. And then we're watching this. Grace was not as interested as I was, but I was like, (laughs) and I had a different opinion as far as the speed of the film. I felt like it was really quick. The characters were really quickly introduced. There wasn't a lot of backstory about who each person was. And then all of a sudden you're in this crazy stagecoach and all this stuff is happening. And for whatever reason, I just was there with them. And that really rarely happens for me especially with older films, it's harder to get in that headspace where I'm there in the movie. And I was believing it. I was buying it. I was loving it. And I think I just love cowboy culture too. So watching (laughs) them interact and the costuming, I was like, Mm -hmm. I have a crush on John Wayne now. Yeah. Once they were all like in the stagecoach, I was like, okay, this is interesting. (laughs) I wanted to know there's some mystery about Mm -hmm. Why, why, what? Like, why does nobody like this person? Why is this person being exiled? Like, what's going on? Yeah, there's a whole social thing going on. You know, it's interesting. um, As a straight white male, I got (laughs) to say, John Wayne seems very sexy in this movie to me. Yes, (laughs) that's true. Yeah, I was looking at him a little differently. too. I I never saw him in that way. (laughs) He made me want to buy a pair of Levi's. I'll just say that. (laughs) I know. Well, that first time you see him, the shot tracks in on him. And I believe it was probably shot in a studio with rear projection. Mm -hmm. But it tracks in it. And I've watched the shot over and over again because it's so iconic and Mm -hmm. myth making. And it goes out of focus halfway through. I noticed that. I mean, he kept it. And I grew up thinking that John Wayne, you know, I had liberal parents and John Wayne was for the Vietnam War. We were against the Vietnam War. So I thought of him as being very conservative. And it took me a long time to come around to liking John Wayne in movies because of the kind of political side and the fact that he didn't seem to be that much of an actor to me. He seemed like he just stood there and said his <laughs> lines. And the... But in this movie, I feel like he's really acting. Mm-hmm. Guy, what was your take on it? And is this your first time seeing it? Yes. Never seen Stagecoach. Uh, it was all right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it did a lot of good things with the pacing and the character development, the uh, Dallas character. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me forever to figure out what was her deal. It's obvious. <laughs> yeah. I didn't pick up on it until they got to um, Lordsburg. Mm-hmm. Until I was like, oh, that's why. Okay. Because like that's the part did. of town that she goes to. Yeah. I like that it wasn't overtly stated. You had to like figure it out, figure it out for yourself. And the same with the gambler character. And there's, I don't know. I don't I don't want to do any spoilers. I think spoilers are okay. Yeah. yeah. This movie is 83 yeah, years old. Yeah. So if people don't know by now what happens, then they're never going to know. 
Okay, okay, yeah, so like, the wicked yeah, we can spoil well. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. You've had 80 um, years to watch the damn right. thing. So I didn't know why he pulled out the gun to shoot the lady. Yeah, that was confusing. Mallory, he's a Southerner, and that's what gets revealed about him right pretty early mm-hmm. on. He's not just a gambler, but he was a Confederate. At right. one point, one guy said he fought for the North, and he said mm-hmm. they have a conflict in terms, right? right? But what the gambler is doing is he's preparing to protect the virtue of to basically prevent the society woman from being raped by Indians mm-hmm. once they capture her. So that's mercy why he has killing. one last bullet left. Yeah, it was going to be a mercy killing so she wouldn't go through that. And to me, that's one of the most amazing dramatic points of the movie. Okay. And I also think that's a character who's identified with death all the way through. The way mm-hmm. he dresses, the cards, morning clothes. the fact that, yeah, the clothes, right? He's wearing Victorian morning fashion, his dark black coat. You wouldn't have worn a black coat unless you were in mourning. You would have worn gray or houndstooth, tweed or denim. It's not just a portrait of how we make community in the middle of the wilderness, but it's a portrait of America. And so to include Northerners and a Southerner, and the mm-hmm. fact that he dies at the end is kind of what happened to the South, right? At least at that time in history was, you know, the South lost the Civil War. So right. he's a tragic figure which would resonate with people. Because remember, the Civil War is only like 75 years old at that point. There's still people who grew up with their parents who fought in the war and grandparents mm-hmm. who fought in the war and heard mm-hmm. stories. So. Mm-hmm. so David, how about you checking it out for the first time in how many years? It's not my favorite John Ford Western, so I just haven't gone back to it a lot. I mean, I like it. I only saw it once before and probably when I was in my 20s. So to date myself, that's close to 40 years. At the age of the movie. <laughs> right. That's right. Oh, that's weird. So did it play for you this time? It did, yeah. You know, we were talking about the racism, the attitudes towards Native Americans. That bothered me more when I saw it in the mm-hmm. 70s than it did now, because and I don't know why. It's not that my attitude is any different than it was then. But I guess I've seen more Westerns since then. And actually, John Ford is much more sensitive about Native Americans than most other Western directors that I've seen since. I've seen a lot of Westerns since then. They've got like guys from Brooklyn with red paint on and they're supposed to be Indians. And it's, He didn't do that. Uh, yes, the Apaches are depicted as being on the warpath. He doesn't go into the reasons why the Apaches are on the warpath. So in that way, it's not very enlightening. And I remembered that it had every cliche in the book, even 40 years ago. And so once I was prepared for that, seeing them again, I was like, yeah, but these are all cliches because they've been imitated by everybody. And they're great cliches. You know, they're really, really fun cliches. I want to take a stand on the Native American part of this Mm -hmm. because Ford was made an honorary member of one of the tribes at some point. He made a movie called Cheyenne Autumn, his second to last movie, which was from the Indian point of view more than any other. It was about the Trail of Tears. And the three things in the movie itself that I thought somewhat mitigate, you know, kind of the inherent racism of the time. One is that he has a balanced character. That's something you always do in movies, right? You create a character who is Native American, but he's Cheyenne, and he's telling everybody about the Apaches. And they make it very clear early on, the Cheyenne hate the Apaches more than we do, or the Apaches hate the Cheyenne more than they hate, you know, the white folks. The couple that takes them in, there's a Mexican man, and he's married an Apache woman. It's a great line where they say, she's a savage. And the husband goes, yes, I think she is a little bit savage. A little bit savage, yeah. (laughs) That was like a sexual thing. two other things that I thought kind of mitigate a little bit the racism. One is that incredible panning shot from this long shot of the stagecoach to the close-up of the Native Americans. 
And it creates fear, obviously, but also those faces look so authentic. Like, again, Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like a guy from Brooklyn. It looks like real Native Americans. They called him Papa. He hired them, helped them out a lot. During the Depression, when a lot of them were starving, he would come and give them jobs. So uh, he was well-liked in that community. And the third thing is the stunts in that incredible attack sequence. They're out of control. I mean, they're badass. Yeah. The jumping from horse to horse. I was like, how many more horses is he going to jump on? And the people just going under the horses. Yeah, it was crazy. And the poor horses themselves. Yeah, Grace (laughs) found out an interesting fact about the actual horses. Yeah, I found out that a lot of the horses had to be destroyed. And that's their Mm. terminology for putting down horses. It's like they're a machine, but... I mean, they would have been dead by now anyway, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Injured during the shooting. Because of the tripwires? Yeah, yeah. I read about the tripwires. There's like W wires or something they called it. And they would just snatch them and then they'd get their legs kicked out from underneath them. It's sad. There were some where they would actually send them off of cliffs in some movies. Really brutal until ASPCA got into the act Mm -hmm. on it. The great stuntman, Yakima Canute. David, who uh, does that incredible stunt where he slides underneath all the horses. That's defying. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. What happens is he falls off a horse. So the three horses on the left run to his left. The three on the right run to his right. They all miss him. And then the stagecoach passes over him. He just lies there on the ground and somehow doesn't get crushed. No CGI. And they were going fast. Oh, yeah. I read that they made the horses go extra fast because if they went too slow, they wouldn't go in a straight line. So they were hauling ass. <laughs> you can see the guy lay down and then cover his face, but it looked very realistic, you know? I'd cover my like, face. I, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. That's what, I would cover my face, too. That wouldn't be um, the only thing I'd cover. <laughs> right. right. I did get a chance to see how many takes they took. If I was that Hopefully guy. Hopefully one. Yeah, yeah, multiple cameras. Yeah. It was used in one of the Indiana Jones movies, too, where Harrison Ford falls underneath a vehicle and he gets dragged along by his whip, I think. Oh, wow. So they kind of take it a step further. Everything in this movie has been imitated more times than we can count or more times than we know. David, can you tell us a little bit, just a kind of thumbnail on John Ford, the director, who also has a prominent role at the end of Steven Spielberg's new movie, The Fablements, except played by David Lynch. Stagecoach was a movie that people loved, but I think the reason it still exists as one of the great films of all time is really because of John Ford's reputation. He's been called the greatest director of all time by people like Orson Welles, Ingmar Bergman, Kira Kurosawa, and lots of others. I read that Orson Welles watched this movie like at least 40 times, and he called it like the perfect template for filmmaking, and he was like obsessed with it. (laughs) <laughs> to prepare for making Citizen Kane, yes, since he had yeah. never made a film, mm-hmm. he watched this film over and over. And when he was asked who the greatest film directors were, he said, well, there are three great film directors, John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. <laughs> so he was a big fan. He won four Best Director Oscars, which is more than anyone else in history. Wow. He was a very complicated man. So there are a lot of great stories about him, and I can't begin to go. I mean, there are books about this guy. So I'll just try to keep it brief. Uh, He was sensitive. He was dictatorial, but he hated authority. He had a very poetic nature, but he was very abusive, even bringing John Wayne to tears. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, Yes. Good for him. (laughs) (laughs) He was loyal, very loyal to his friends, but also very evasive. 
didn't like to talk about himself or his films. There was something bigger than life about him. People loved working with him, and the same crew and the same actors kept working with him over and over. Jimmy Stewart said, take everything you've heard about him, multiply it a hundred times, and you still don't have a picture of John Ford. So he's born of Irish descent in 1894 in Maine, one of 11 children. And when he turned 20, his much older brother, Francis, was already making movies in Hollywood, uh, had his own production company. And so Ford came cross country. He made dozens of silent shorts and features, but he wasn't all that proud of them. It was a job. He just called them pictures. I'm making pictures. Uh, he hated pretension, but he got a script called The Iron Horse, which was a Western and he saw a chance to do something that he could be proud of. So he went out on location, away from all the executives, and he spent $280,000 in the studio's money, which was way, way over budget. And uh, they were very upset and wanted to shut him down, but it was too late. Um, the film grossed $2 million, which astounded everybody. And after that, he got much more respect and he got more money to make his films. And that was a silent movie, by the way. It's considered one of the great silent films. Right. So now they had the success, he decided to turn away from Westerns. He wanted to make pictures that interested him more. I won't go through them all. He made a lot of good pictures. In 1935, he made a film called The Informer, which was about the Irish Troubles, something very close to his heart, because he, in fact, had gone there, given money to the IRA, and then had the crap beaten out of him by the British police but then continued to give money to the IRA. That's amazing. British. He stopped making Westerns in 1926, and uh, he didn't return to it until 13 years later when he made Stagecoach. One more thing, he wanted to be a tough guy. So one day, uh, this actor on the lot who was down in his lot begged him for $200 because his wife needed an operation. And John Ford screamed at him and knocked him down to the ground in front of all these people and walked away in a huff. And then later that day, he had his secretary send that actor a $1,000 check, have him driven to his house where Ford had an ambulance waiting, and at his own expense, had a top surgeon flown in from San Francisco to do the operation. Wow. And he didn't tell anybody about it. How does that make you... Toxic masculinity like, yeah. at its finest. His brother said he felt that if he heard the sob story... He would break down into tears in front of everybody, and he couldn't oh, bear that. I'm just going to kick your ass <laughs> <Wow>. instead. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I, I got to say, having spent some time in Hollywood, there is some advantage to having, it's almost like they tell stories about if you go to prison and someone comes at you, you better take them down the first day or right. at least put up a fight. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, they're going to take advantage of you the rest of the time that you're there. And I feel like Hollywood's like that, too. Yeah, the first film that John Ford ever got to make in 1917, he got to shoot some stuff because the crew hadn't shown up. So he shot some stuff ad hoc, and then it turned out to be the best part of the film. So uh, next time Bill Emily, the head of Universal, needed a director, he said, give Jack Ford the job. He yells good. <laughs> true. All his friends called him Jack. They didn't call him John Ford. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that he loved to kick producers off the set. He hated authority. That's a lot of the reason why he liked shooting on location was so that the studio to couldn't fuck with them. They couldn't show up. Right. On the first day of one film, he brought the producer on the set and he said to the crew, say hello to Cliff, because this is the last time you'll see him until the film is done. <laughs> or the picture is done. <laughs> All right. Now, Jake, this film was made well nine years into the Depression, right? Right. Can you tell us anything about what was happening in America at that time? The headlines were about staying out of the World War that was breaking out, World War II. America was still recovering from the Great Depression, so there was this fear amongst everybody, working class and not, that 
things were going to be bad again. But juxtaposed to that was the greatest year in film history, as that year has the monarch of Gone with the Wind and Weathering Heights and Wizard of Oz and Renoir's Rules of the Game all came out that year. Grapes of Wrath was published that year. Mistress Fifth Goes to Washington. Yeah, exactly. This film really resonated. I also think about the position of a person from 1939 and how they may be reacting to the film. And the scenario that came to mind is that feeling when you think about how you would react in a state of emergency when you're with perfect strangers and something horrible is going on and you have to work together with this person in this stagecoach in this state of emergency and their mindset of everything that was happening in their world. And it was exciting to be in that headspace because something I think magical happens when you are in a really horrible situation with strangers where you're like suddenly so close. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if in 1939, with fascism taking over Europe and the depression going on for almost 10 years, if people just really wanted to remember the America that was still growing, that Mm -hmm. still had promise, uh, you know, the good old days. Mm -hmm. I really noticed the historical accuracy of the costume. Another thing I do when I'm watching a movie is like pick the shit out of what the people are wearing, especially Mm -hmm. in like a period Mm -hmm. piece. And I always think like when this film came out, how long ago was the time period the movie is set in? So I love that you think that way. Right. I'm like, what was their depiction of this period in America? Probably about 50 years before, right? It was probably like 1890. Right. Because when I think about 50 years ago, I'm thinking of a completely different era. And so when I looked at the costumes, I could see a person from 1939's perspective of what that time period may have been. And you can see the differences in the way they highlighted Dallas's character. She had a cap sleeve and her arm was showing in the very last scene when she takes her coat off and gives it to Miss Mallory. And they show her entire arm. And that was like really daring. Didn't you say 1870s? Because Mm -hmm. obviously the railroad wasn't built yet. Right. So stagecoaches probably ran through the 70s, maybe into the 1880s, and that was it. The Civil War seemed pretty fresh on their minds, so Mm -hmm. it probably was the 1870s. Along with the costumes, which really give this great period feel, I don't know if it was standard for movies at the time, but there seems like there's a lot of detail and grit. Like the towns are kind of gritty. The night sequence at the end to me is gorgeous, like atmospheric. You feel it's alive. You feel there's Mm -hmm. stuff happening in different parts of town. You almost get a sense of the geography as they walk around. And there's so much detail in the background inside the bar on the streets. It felt super immersive to me. I don't know about you guys. Such a good point, because trying to remember why I liked it more this time. So in the 50s, I don't know if you've seen all those Westerns in the 1950s, but Everyone's sparkling clean, and they were really fake looking. And the bad guys wore black hats and snarled, and the good guys wore white hats, very moral. Then Sergio Leone came along and put everyone in dirty, horrible clothes, and everyone was a little bit morally uncertain, right? And so he gets credit for having sort of created that. But really, this film isn't that far from Sergio Leone. It's not Hollywoodized like the typical Westerns that came out later. How much do you think is due to the black and white photography that it gives you a sense of like looking at old photographs that the costumes and everything works so much better than if it were in color? Even if you watch black and white TV shows in the 50s and they had a lot of Western TV shows, Wagon Train and all that, Bonanza, it still didn't look realistic. And some of those were in black and white, too. I do think it is, as Grace mentioned, the costuming that the people 
aren't just good or bad, but they're complex. They each have good and bad well, qualities. There's actually something very interesting that happens in the movie, which is you have a set of respectable characters who turn out to be maybe not so respectable. And you've got a set of disrespectable characters, John Wayne, the outlaw, quote unquote. You've got Dallas, the prostitute. We say you've got sex worker the, nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> sex worker. Okay. Sex worker. Well, they actually called her a dance hall girl, I believe, in oh. the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because back then performers were like very, what's the word, risque, yeah. taboo. Or you'd pay to dance with the woman and then maybe take her upstairs. Yeah. yeah there was definitely a crossover there. It was the euphemism of the time, too, was dance hall girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she's the sex worker. And then you have the doctor who's alcoholic, being kicked out of town with Dallas. In fact, he's kind of taking her under his arm a little bit, and she's sort of like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, I mean, I swear I'm like a softie, but I get so choked up in that scene where he suddenly has to step up. <laughs> and he has that line where he says, coffee, lots of coffee, black coffee. And he comes through. Did you guys know that the woman was pregnant? Did mm -hmm. you get the hint of that already? Yeah. Yeah. That went way over my head until that baby came out. I was like, <laughs> what was the name of the actor that played the doctor, by the way? He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. Thomas Mitchell. Right. Thomas Mitchell is in a lot of movies. That was so funny when the doctor punched that guy out during the chase. <laughs> <laughs> but his punch was like, yeah, <laughs> just barely touching him. I was waiting for someone to knock yeah. that guy out. And the thing with the punch not being that realistic, John Ford, by the way, abhorred violence. Mm. I mean, he really hated it. He knew that the studios wanted that and that the audiences wanted that. Mm -hmm. But he always tried to make the violence he depicted kind of bloodless because he, himself, he couldn't bear it. Yeah, and there's only one real action scene in the whole movie, right? Right. And, and yet at the same time, during World War II, uh, you mentioned the war coming up, he volunteered. He was shot by the Japanese on Midway Island. Wow. He was there on the Omaha beach at D-Day shooting it wow. While, wow. while all these Americans were being mowed down. He was one of the first people to photograph the horror of the uh, Nazi death camps. Yeah. So, he, yeah, he didn't shrink from it, but he hated it. There's a great book called Five Came Back, and it came out a few years ago. And it's about five Hollywood directors that were brought in by the army, the armed services, to photograph different parts of the war. And they would put together these, what they called signal corp, these different film units. And some of the footage they didn't even show afterwards because it was too brutal. Like they only showed it like a few years ago. But Ford was very brave. William Wyler, John Huston, George Stevens. Uh, I think William Wellman might have been the other one. Fred Capra. Uh, it was a Capra. It was Capra, right. They helped the war effort, but they also helped document it. John Houston made a movie afterwards about soldiers that have what they called shell shock back then, what we would call PTSD, called Let There Be Light, which is a black and white film with soldiers in an asylum who've been through the war and are all like really fucked up. And that was suppressed for years. You couldn't see that movie for a long time. When Ford shot the Midway sequences, he himself got shot by a machine gun bullet. It was an air attack by the Japanese of Midway Island. 30 Americans were killed and... When the film was over, he actually individually cut an eight millimeter film of each soldier that had died and talked about their courage and bravery and did a whole thing about them and then sent each film to their family member so that they'd have a personal remembrance. How incredible. You'd love that. So look, while we're uh, talking about the past, Grace, do you have anything to add about the production from your research? 
Well, the budget, I guess this was an average budget at the time, $530,000, and they were under the budget. And a few actors, including John Wayne, took pay that was below their rate just so the film could get made, the picture can get made under budget. Hmm. And the picture. <laughs> the picture. picture. And John Ford fought really hard for John Wayne to be in this film. He shopped it around to a few different studios. And they were like, yeah, we'll do it, but we don't really want John Wayne. And he just held out for him. But even so, like you said, he made him cry on set. He was like emotionally abusive, but he claims it was to like get the best emotions out of him. <laughs> very interesting treatment. Yeah, the production just seemed very grueling out there in Northwest Arizona. Long hours and it got pretty cold at night and there was really strong winds. Yeah, Monument Valley was a very remote place. There's a good story that Peter Bogdanovich tells. He came down, a much later film, the last film Ford made in Monument Valley. He wanted to interview John Ford. And the producers said, oh, you can't talk to John Ford. They're like, they were so afraid of John Ford, the producers, <laughs> that they, you can't talk to him. And so Bogdanovich waited until they weren't looking and then went into Ford's office and said, hi, can I talk to Ford? I said, sure, come on in. And they got along fine. And then the producer said to Peter Bogdanovich, you've got to leave. You, you can't stay around here. And Ford said, what do you mean? They can have my room and I'll sleep out in the tent. He loved being out there in this rugged area. And he liked what it did to everyone else, too. It got everyone else. In the right mindset. Yeah. That you focused. Mm -hmm. Guy, what did you hear about the reception? It revamped or invigorated the making of Western movies. Like Grace said, it made a, over a million dollars post the depression which is a uh, good it's very critically acclaimed but i also mm -hmm. found out this interesting fact they made three stagecoach movies right they made the original and then they did it again in 1966 and then in 1986 the leads were uh willie nelson chris christopherson and johnny cash how's that one i i didn't i didn't i didn't watch those <laughs> um <laughs> Um, I don't think a lot of people have, but yeah, but the one with Willie Nelson and Christopher Shopping, that was like a made for TV movie in the eighties. Made for TV movies were a thing. The uh, Confederate soldiers name, they switched it to Doc Holliday. Wait, are you saying that's supposed to be the guy from Stagecoach? I think it's very similar. Okay. Okay. And they changed that character's name to Doc Holliday in the okay. 1986 version. Let's move on and talk about the characters. The original poster of the movie calls them nine strange characters on this one stagecoach together. Does you that have, mean they don't know each other? Or does it mean they're weird? I think it meant that they were kind of weird. Well, it says a powerful story of nine strange people. The whiskey salesman, who's very proper and meek, <laughs> and keeps having his <laughs> booze, his samples drunk by the drunk doctor. Poor God. <laughs> Did anyone else laugh? I thought that the doctor mm. stuff was really funny. Yeah, me too. I like the doctor oh, yeah. stuff. It was, yeah. it was pretty cool. Um, I like how you can tell who's going to get injured first. Um, yeah, it was definitely. <laughs> yeah, the first arrow was going to be that guy. You, you knew he was just he's a mark. very yeah, plain, he's a mark. middle of the road. The um, innocent. Not, yeah. The shot of how he gets hit by the arrow is kind of shocking. Like I thought it was. I know. Yeah, I was, was like, out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I did like that. It was yeah. pretty cool. And then you've got the two guys on the top of the stagecoach. One is the driver, played by Andy Devine, who's hilarious. His voice he talks is like so this. Funny. He's always talking like, and he's he always trying to get a word in. He reminded me of the guy that worked for Hedley Lamar in Blazing Saddles. It was oh, like yeah. the guy was doing a total impression of that guy. And oh, for sure he was. And then you've got the sheriff, 
who is trying to get Ringo, I think, right? Is that his yeah. deal? Yeah, he wants to find Ringo and bring him to justice. But he wants to take him back to jail because he thinks that's the only place he'll be safe from the three mm-hmm. Plummer brothers who killed his family. That scene of the Plummer brothers at the end, and you were talking about the night shots being so beautiful. And it's them walking through town at night, and you kind of see the moonlight shining on them. And in comparison, Ringo is with Dallas, as far as the geography of the town. They definitely made a map of this fake town while they were planning this out. (laughs) That scene, I was like, in it, for sure. It was cool. I I was in it. You got the part where the doctor takes the rifle away from the lead brother, but then he walks outside, and one of his buddies (laughs) throws him a rifle from the roof. (laughs) Yeah. During that fight scene... You know exactly what's happening at every moment. You know who's shooting. You know whether they mm. missed or got the guy. Now when I watch action films, half the time, it's cut so fast. What's going on? Yeah, yeah I have no idea. It's just like, okay, all hell is breaking loose, but I don't, yeah, I don't know what's going on. And Ford really knew how to tell a story visually. You see Ringo basically hit the ground as a way to avoid getting shot, and he fires three bullets, and you don't know who's dead. And you see the plumber brother, the lead guy, walking into the bar. I mean, we've seen this now a million times in movies, but mm-hmm. I bet at the time it was pretty shocking. And yeah. he just collapses. But I also like how they foreshadowed that he was going to die with aces and eights. And that's Dead Man's Hand. Not my favorite iteration of that trope, but uh, it was cool to see. So we've talked a little bit about the uh, doctor and how we all loved him. He won the the Oscar. He has this great line at the end where he says, Free from the benefits of civilization, something like that, where he basically is making a cynical crack about how civilized society is full of garbage. Mm -hmm. But um, aside from him, what about other characters that struck people? Anyone want to take up the torch for Dallas, maybe? I really love Dallas. Mm -hmm. I thought she did not deserve that treatment. And when John Wayne was like, come sit by me at the table, and Mm -hmm. then she sat down, and then the higher class people got up. I was like, what the hell? And Ringo thought it was him. And Dallas, Dallas it was her. yeah, she didn't want to say like, oh, no, it's because of me. <laughs> but I really felt for her. And she delivered the baby. Yeah, what, her connection with say? the baby, too. Like, <laughs> yeah. she really couldn't give the baby up. She had that one shot at being like normal with this baby and like her picture. And then she had to give the baby back to this pompous woman. Do you guys catch how John Wayne looks at her when he sees her oh, holding yeah. the baby? Oh, yeah. He's like, mm-hmm. my wifey, <laughs> my baby girl. <laughs> One of the things I want to say about Claire Trevor's performance is I think it's really internal compared to a lot of actors at that time. You don't see her overly emoting. You know that she's feeling stuff, but she keeps kind of pulling it back in. So there's never that kind of broad, you know, she's not begging for us to love her or anything mm. like that. She's just a woman who's in pain. She has a little bit of backstory. You find out she was orphaned, that she basically grew up having to make choices that the proper woman didn't have to make. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really interesting line. When John Wayne tells her, why don't you marry me? And she says, well, you don't know me. Yeah, you don't know who I am. (laughs) Yeah, you know anything about me? And he says, I know what I want to know. And that's an interesting line (laughs) in a few ways. Yeah, go ahead, though. I think her lack of emoting really lends to her character development as this woman who's been through so much, yet she's still standing and she's being badass and she's caring for this baby amongst all this chaos. And I think that it was really meant for the audience to be like, that's a bad bitch. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, but but that's also like a trope, though. The hooker slash sex worker with the heart of gold. No, I'm serious. No, it's definitely a trope. No, it is. It's a trope. But I think the way she did it was really cool because... She would have to have a thick skin. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Dallas was the most real character. 
in this film. Um, Absolutely agree. I didn't get why Ringo was such... He was supposed to be a bad boy, but I guess the studio couldn't make him too bad or they still (laughs) wanted people to like that character that John Wayne played. But he just seemed too good like he was like a bad anti-hero and i think they're insinuating that dallas you know really isn't bad even though the townspeople think of her as being you know the worst thing ever ringo got caught up in something that he couldn't prevent it's not like he's doing innocent people or anything in westerns you could shoot a guy in the wild west you know as long as it's a fair fight ringo shot those three guys and the sheriff didn't even really even talk about it when they got back up with ringo He's like, oh, this guy's got shot. Oh, Let's go well. get a drink. Yeah. Hey, uh, <laughs> are you going to take yourself to jail? We're going to give you this cart. Just you're on your honor. Yeah. Uh, go ahead and just. Well, well, they basically let him free. Frontier justice. Yeah, that's what I gathered at the end. But it just, as a taxpayer at that time period, I would be upset. Yeah. That the cops didn't do their job at that. At that time. <laughs> but it's movie magic. Was... Imagine if he went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to jail and you can't be with your lady. We'd be like, screw this movie. You know, there's that whole sequence at night with John Wayne and Dallas when they're in that outpost, which I always come back to as being the one that sticks in my head and that I think is being the most like an Orson Welles movie. There's a shot where they're still in the hacienda and John Wayne's close to camera on the side of the hallway and Dallas is down at the end of the hallway and she's lit beautifully. Like mm. it's like glowing backlight on her. I just feel like that's the heart of the movie. That's the love story that you really see how tough it is for them to find each other, how tough it's going to be for them to be together. He's supposed to end up in jail. She's not supposed to be with a normal dude. Um, I just remember those. I wondered if anybody else, and look, and I love the action sequence, like I can't get enough. and, And I love the ending, that whole last sequence. But did anybody else have any favorite scenes or moments in the movie that they want to bring up? Jake is nodding, so why don't you go ahead? There's a scene that sticks in my head. I'm a sucker for, like, this background ambiance. I want to live in the scene, like I've been talking about this whole time. For me, is when they're walking at night, and she is like, you don't want to see where I live. You know, she doesn't want him to see her little shanty. And they get there, and she's like, this is why I didn't want to show you where I live. And personally, I just want to go in there and see what's going on, what the drapes look like. There's <laughs> candlelight. I want to walk down that bridge. With her. Well, they're all bordellos. Yeah. And you can yeah. see there's some shanty behind hers. Like, what is going on in there? I just really wanted to know. She really just shows her vulnerability at that point. Like, she can't hide anymore. He's looking at her life just by seeing her home, you know? And I think that scene really stuck in my head. And they're finally together alone, I think, for the first time in that scene. I think that's her last test of him, you know? She's like, you really want to be with me? Yeah, this is my life. And he was like, I told you I wanted to marry you, right? It's like, oh, I want a John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Grace, what about you? Did you have any other scenes that stuck out to you that you want to mention? I think I already talked about it. That table scene really stood out to me. And like we are saying, the chase, that was a really long chase, but I was super enthralled when they ran into the Apaches. Do you see the Apache loading their gun on the horse while going full tilt? I read somewhere that somebody asked John Ford why the natives didn't just shoot out the horses pulling the stagecoach. And he just said, well, the picture would have been over at that point. <laughs> Guy, was there a scene that we haven't mentioned that, or a moment that stood out to you? Dallas getting chased by the League of... Concerned Citizens? <laughs> yeah, people that just need to go mind their own business and stop yeah, bothering sure people. Is. 
and not to sound that uh, sexist or shallow, but none of those people were pretty. Right. They were all like dry. <laughs> yeah, they 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 I mean yeah. it's Hollywood. They can cast anybody. They were uh, hideous. Yeah, they're probably not like a, a, a okay. lot of, yeah. of starlets or anything like that. So <laughs> I, I think that casting did a lot of storytelling oh, that yeah. in that scene. That's a good point. They're all wearing like, drab gray clothes. And they were like yeah. right on Dallas, just like right on her neck the whole entire time. And did you notice that one of the women in that league is the wife of the banker? So when he's ditching town with the money, you're thinking like, yeah, maybe not a bad idea. Yeah, I can, I can see why he left. Um, <laughs> that lady, I can yeah. see why she's not going. I think they just called Central Casting and said, send us six female prudes. <laughs> send me all the six ugly ladies. <laughs> David saying prude is so funny. <laughs> is that a word that's gone out of fashion? No, 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 people no. Still say what other antique phrases can I come up with? Blue noses, right? Yeah. You said blue noses. <laughs> wow. Me and Jake call people prudes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> There's still a lot of prudes out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Guy, do you want to finish up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Guy. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's all good. The final scene with the Ringo shooting the three guys, that scene is why I don't love this movie. Hmm. Ooh, why? Because you wanted to see the bullets ripping through their chest or something? I love, I love, I don't need to see that, but I'm all about the quick draw. I'm all about the the slow, gritty banter right before the bullets come out. Mm -hmm. And I just felt cheated. You wanted more buildup. So what I'm hearing is that you want the more Hollywood version of the shootout. (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) So when we do Wild Bunch... You're going to get your fill. Okay. Oh, you're going to be so happy. Cool. Cool. Oh, yeah. Cool. It's going to be like I a... purposely did not watch Wild Bunch yet because I want to watch it when we do it for this. David, I'm going to give you a chance. Is there any scene that we haven't covered yet or a moment that you want to point out? No, I think it's interesting the way he used Monument Valley, uh, the pacing of the film, the way people are talking really, really fast, mm-hmm. like a lot of old movies, faster than people talk in real life. And then suddenly the stagecoach takes off and you're way up here, and there's all Monument Valley, mm-hmm. and there's this music, and it just slows down, and then speeds up again. It's very musical, the film, just in terms of the uh, pacing of it. So beautiful there, I too. know. I was like, I need to go to the desert. I know. Well, you can still go to Monument Valley. People go. It's gorgeous. One thing I want to mention about the pacing, too, is... At that time, every Western, if you had the cavalry come and save everybody from the Indians... Mm-hmm. That was the end of the movie. And this was the first movie that had an extra ending onto it because there was this plot that we cared about even more that involved Ringo, revenge, and the love story. Yeah. And so that was kind of a rule breaker at the time. And I think it makes it so much more satisfying because if it just ended and they were like saved, it'd be like, okay, who cares? Mm-hmm. Oh, that reminds me. I loved the scene of Miss Mallory when she's about to get shot before the, the she's like muttering the, to herself yeah yeah and then you kind of see on her face that she can hear the cavalry coming to save her right and I'm like How that's very know? powerful yeah because yeah. she heard the bugle mm-hmm. and you just see it on her face before you even see them she's coming like, to she... save them I think this goes to what Jake was talking about the ability to live in the movie I mean I was mm-hmm. really struck earlier in this conversation Jake when I was a kid and I first went to the movies and I fell in love with the movies whether it was seeing Mary Poppins. And I would go home and I'd dream that I was in the movie. I'd literally Mm -hmm. have dreams that I was there with Bert and Mary. And that's part of why I always advocate when possible to see even old movies on a huge screen. Mm -hmm. 
where your phone's off, no one's asking you to do anything, people aren't bugging you, and you're in this, if it's a good movie, you feel like you're drawn into the world mm -hmm. and you're walking around in it. And it really gets you at that deeper level. And afterwards, there's more to mull over because it's huge. It's really filled your mind and your vision. So I love that you still have that feeling like you can be in a movie and that this movie made you feel that makes me feel good about our choice. When I realized like, oh, shit, I am inside of this movie right now <laughs> was when the stagecoach is crossing the water and it's that shaky camera scene mm -hmm. from above the stagecoach like you're sitting up there. And I was like, oh, my God, it's <laughs> on a ride or something. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, oh, shit. It like, really reminded me of Knott's Berry Farm, yeah. especially I don't know if you've ever been there, but on the train ride, they have like robbers who come on there. And I was like, oh, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. <laughs> I did not expect to like this movie. I didn't think I could relate to it in any way. Like every time my mom would put on one of these movies, I was like, you know what I mean? Well, they're not all this good. Right, right. And I watched it and I was like, I want to go to the desert tomorrow. I want to buy some <laughs> Levi's. I need to put on my cowboy boots. I got to tell you guys what I did afterwards, though. I swear to God, at a certain point, I'm like, I need a fucking drink. Yeah. This guy is drinking the whole movie. I need some whiskey. I poured myself a half shot of bourbon and I hit yeah. it. My son was like, what did you just do? <laughs> that was my reaction too. I was like, I need to go to a goddamn saloon. Yeah, it was just great. I don't know. I just very rarely get sucked into a film, especially like an older film. And I'm going to watch every Western ever made. Right now. Uh, we'll give you the good ones. Okay, so this brings us to our ultimate moment here. And Jake, I want you to lead the charge. Okay. The two big questions. Would you recommend this to other people? And would you be specific about who those were? Or could it be anybody? And then what's your star rating? Remember, one to four stars. A four-star rating has to be not just good, like three and a half star is a fantastic rating. Four star would mean 20, 30 best list of all time. Where along the star system would it fall and who would you recommend this to, if anyone? Oh, when I think about this question, I always think about my top two favorite movies for the different reasons and they're Sunset Boulevard and Practical Magic. I always think about those being my fours and I always think about who I would recommend them to being like people that I'm dating so that they can get a feel for what my personal preference and taste is. Yeah. And then like my closest friend group, because when I recommend music or films, I want them to reflect a part of myself. And so absolutely four. And those two groups of people is who I'd recommend it to. Yeah. Oh my God. And like I remember seeing it happened one night and instantly after watching that movie being like, I love movies. I want to be in a movie. I want to write a movie. I want to direct a movie. And this movie gave me the same feeling. Aww. And I hadn't had that in a really long time. All right. So the podcast is over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, or I feel like, me, I feel like Dave and I did our job there. Grace? Yeah, absolutely. It's a four for me. I would recommend this to probably only like film lovers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I liked it, but... For some reason, I couldn't get as immersed in it as Jake, <laughs> but I really appreciate what it did for film and what it did for Westerns. And I think in that regard, I would recommend it to somebody who is into film history and all that. Um, and I would give it a two and a half. Two and a half. So a B plus to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Guy, what about you? Like, I always recommend movies that I've seen, good or bad. So, yeah, I will tell people with... The caveat that the 
Native American trope is the Native American trope that we all hate in film. But it's a great spectacle. Um, a little lacking in my uh, Western cowboy shoot 'em up film requirements. I'll give it a three. A minus. Oh, A minus? Uh, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> David, uh, now that you've seen the movie twice in 40 years, <laughs> how, do you, how do you land this time? I really enjoyed it. It's just a lot of fun. And so that to me is like a three movie. It has this extra sort of historical significance. I mean, it really just embodies so much of America to revive the Western. It's an important movie. So that makes me want to elevate it more. But I think to be fair and just rate the movie itself and its own merits, I'm giving it a three. Dang, I'm the hater. <laughs> Grace is always a hater on black and white films, though. If it's black and white, you're getting two and a half. Yeah. Look, I mean, two and a half means if it's a genre that you like, you would recommend this movie to those people. Not my right? genre. <laughs> I didn't even know it was my genre. I found a new genre. I'm a new person because of this movie. So you're taking away the half star? Are you are you lowering your score now? I, I didn't mean... say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, no. She said that if, if you like the genre, even though it's not her genre, it's a good one. Okay, so here's where I fall. I've seen Stagecoach, I think, about three or four times now. And I was so struck this time watching it that I still was moved. I laughed at times with Thomas Mitchell and the booze. When they stop at one place and it turns out there's an old buddy there who also likes to drink and they're just making jokes about drinking. Yeah. And then I found the action scenes to be unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Like in today's movie, there'd be like six of those action scenes, right? And it would start with it and be like overstuffed. But, you know, it's not a Marvel movie era. And there's some of those shots, like those low angle shots with the horses running over the camera. No one had done a lot of that before. Mm -hmm. So I love that. But the other thing was I was moved. And there were times where these old actors, 80-year-old movie, and I am moved by Dallas and the doctor delivering the baby and the mm -hmm. whole way it's done is so beautiful. And they never even say it's a baby until the baby comes out. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. And then I'm moved by the fact that these characters find redemption. And I think that it's something that we can all relate to is being mm -hmm. down and out at some level in your life. Is there hope? Is there a chance that someone sees something special in you that whatever society is saying isn't the final truth, isn't the final answer? And so I find the ending even very moving where, you know, they basically get sent out of town to his ranch, which I guess is south of the border. So they'll be safe from the law. And so for that reason, it's a three and a half star movie for me. And the only reason it's not a four star movie is there's a few other Westerns I like better. Can't wait to watch them. <laughs> <laughs> When we think back to Midnight Cowboy, which we started the season with, which is about a kind of a quote unquote modern day cowboy in mm -hmm. New York City. So interesting to see how times change in oh, literally yeah. 30 years. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, by the way, I would recommend it to people that love Westerns or film lovers. And I got to tell you, it's really weird. I finished watching the last episode of White Lotus last night, and I feel like oh, there's a line too. from Stagecoach. So yeah. Lotus. There, I was drawing I really, similarities the whole time. It was so weird because we watched it back to back. Again, you have disreputable characters and reputable mm -hmm. characters, and they're mixing up together, and there's all these different stories, and there's no one main character, and certain people find redemption, and it's a vision of how the world works. This movie is a vision of how America works. So I think the influence has been huge. I mean, even movies like Airport, you know, which was big in the 70s and all these come from this multi-character drama of Stagecoach. The definition of a classic is something you can return to time and again with no diminishment of pleasure. 
Right. And I felt no I less think, pleasure this time than the first time I saw it. And I think my point of view is different from y'all because y'all have all seen a lot of Western films. This is my first one. And my perspective as being born in 1995 is that like this movie and this entire podcast relates thematically like no matter what period of life you're in or what's going on in the world, it like makes you want to relate to other people being on an adventure like people were watching this movie in 1939 and wanting to escape you know mm -hmm. and give your life some purpose and excitement and like that's what I really found in this film mm -hmm. and I also just love the desert and cowboy culture yeah I wish I could put myself in the mindset of somebody from 1939 because I know would have been a lot more oh, yeah. impactful for me. I feel like back then it was like their Mad Max or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> yeah, kind of. And I, and I do think Fury Road feels like it was influenced by mm -hmm. this too. Definitely. Um, all right, guys, I'm going to call it. This uh, is, wait, uh, um, We gave Stagecoach 3.2 stars. 3.2 is That's our ultimate good. average. It's not bad. Another winner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. Are we going to watch a loser? I feel like we should watch no. it. No. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I feel like yeah. The way that I see it is that David and my job is to recommend really great movies to you guys. And if for some reason they don't hold up, at least we tried. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because believe me, there's so many bad movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think about 80% of the movies made in the 80s, maybe 95% oh. were. Okay, we're, uh, you're a different person than I thought you were, Mark. <laughs> At any point, any year, 90% of the movies made are pretty bad. No, that right just means that. I have really bad taste in movies. We call or it Or you camp. found the good ones. Yeah. yeah. We like camp. Yeah. I, I got to say, I'm not a huge fan of camp unless it's John Waters. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, of yeah, course. That's what I was yeah. Divine, my queen. If you want to stream Stagecoach for yourself, it's currently available with subscription to HBO Max and Prime Video, and you can rent it elsewhere. It shows up on TCM a lot. If you like our show, please tell your friends and rate and review the show so others can find us as well. Generation Film is an Electrocast production. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson, and our producers are David Tausick and Guy Lewis, who are also two of the panelists, along with Grace Chapman and Jake Flowers. Join us for our next episode, Carol Reed's film noir classic, The Third Man. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives' activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electric acid.